0: My mother is the classic bleeding heart in all of the best ways. When I was growing up uh, in Pittsburgh, the day before Christmas Eve, she would take me and my brother Jason Christmas caroling and we would have a bucket for donations. And she would uh, take this money and she would buy stockings and fill it with really practical things like toothbrushes and, and toothpaste and wool socks, and we would take these stockings to the local soup kitchen and hand them out to folks coming in for a meal on Christmas Eve. So. To collect these donations, we'd go around our neighborhood caroling, and then sometimes, if the weather was nice, we'd go into downtown Pittsburgh, and we'd hit some bars and restaurants. And so one day, I remember Mom taking us by the hand and walking into this bar, and I looked around, and I noticed that all the people in this bar were dressed in kind of like black leather jackets, and boots, and <laughs> bandanas, and they all had bushy facial hair and like bulging biceps, even the women. And, and I started, uh, started seeing my, my mom kind of have this look of hesitation on her face at what I realized was now a biker bar. But that hesitation turned to sheer panic when the largest biker of them all, we'll call him Hagrid, got up. (laughs) And, and headed straight for us. And I was just a little peanut of a thing. I was like four. I had my mittens and my earmuffs in my little bucket. And Hagrid, before we knew what was happening, had scooped me up and set me on his shoulders. And was now taking me around to individuals in the bar and kind of now, as I remember as an adult, awkwardly long, kind of hovering over them in a menacing fashion. Until they dropped something, some change or a few dollars into my bucket. We made a killing that night. We were just rolling in stockings. But if you'd asked my mother before this incident, you know, who do you think would make the biggest contribution to our little charity, uh, I, I doubt very much that she would have said the bikers. When we hear certain designations, we get a picture of what certain groups of people are like. Bikers, millennials, Star Trek fans, and not the new ones, the old ones with Shatner and Professor X. And when I say Star Trek fan, you're actually getting an idea of what a Star Trek fan looks like, what they're talking about right now. You may or may not even know a Star Trek fan, but you're getting a sense of what they're doing. We just wrapped up Zach's series on how to make a friend, as observed through the wisdom of the Proverbs. And these next three weeks, we're gonna be looking at how a community, how a group of people that have discovered friendship around a common purpose, how a community serves to reflect the character of God in the world. And this is important because we don't just reflect the character of God individually. When we get together, when we all get together, we, what we do, what we say, how we make people feel as a group this leaves a unique impression that is different from the one that we leave as an individual. We see this in nature. You see a wolf in your backyard in the morning mist, that's kind of, you know, it's beautiful, it's majestic. You see a pack of wolves in your backyard in the morning, you don't leave the house, it's terrifying. You, you approach one middle school girl in the hallway, that's, you know, that's exciting, maybe she'll pass you a note, you'll get a date to the Sadie Hawkins dance. You approach a pack of middle school girls in the hallway, that will land you in therapy as an adult. <laughs> You see one summit pastor in the lobby, great. I see four summit pastors in the lobby and I feel this paralyzing pressure to say something funny. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, there's, there's, there's a difference. A group of people, no matter how wonderful each of them are individually, can leave an altogether different impression when they're in a pack. I think this is why I sometimes hear Christians talk, uh, particularly when we're addressing non-Christians, we, we talk about this, this group of people and we like to distance ourselves from them. And this group of people, I would, I would call them church people. Well, I mean, I love Jesus, but I'm not like those church people. And I, and I get it, you know, church people can be the worst. But you see the problem, you are church people. <laughs> I am church people. We're all church people. And we, when we do that, we actually haven't fixed the problem of our bad reputation, but we've actually added to it di- divisiveness, disunity, slander, I'm not the lone warrior out there defending God's reputation amidst a sea of church people ruining it, I am church people. You are church people, we are all church people to someone. And so when we come together to worship as the body of Christ, not just as individuals, but as the body of Christ together, it's because we submit to the wisdom suggested by God's design. The wisdom that none of us reflects the image of God better than all of us can together. God actually wants to show the world something about his character that can best and perhaps only be displayed through all of us, not just one of us. Gathering to worship as the body of Christ reminds us that we are interdependent on purpose, and I know this is counterintuitive because people are generally what make life hard. If you're a parent, small people make life hard in disproportionate measure to their height and weight, but this is still not a design flaw. None of us were meant to do life alone, and when we do so, we actually distort the image of God in us. The image of our maker who as father, son, and spirit has always eternally, intentionally lived in community and has created us to do the same. So in the next three weeks, we're gonna be looking at some communal functions of Christ-centered community. We're gonna look at what God wants to show the world through a healthy Christ-centered community that can't be demonstrated by individuals alone. Today, we're gonna be talking about celebration, And specifically, we're gonna be talking about the celebration of life change that we gather to observe in public worship, not least of all on a day like this when we're going to watch our brothers and sisters make a public declaration of their personal faith as they go down into the water to be baptized. If you have your scriptures with you, you can open up to Psalm 51, which is the text we'll be using this morning. I know it's long, but stick with me. It's a good one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. "'so that sinners will turn back to you. "'Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, "'you who are God my Savior, "'and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. "'Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. "'You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. "'You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. "'My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, "'a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. "'May it please you to prosper, Zion, "'to build up the walls of Jerusalem.' Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. I love that Zach used Proverbs as the backdrop of the friendship series. The Psalms, the Song of Songs, and then the the wisdom books, which is Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, comprise this beautiful section of scripture um, collectively that's sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature. But the Psalms and the Song of Songs are written entirely in poetic verse. So the Psalms were actually used as a public avenue of worship. They were meant to be sung, and from them we get the Psalter, which many churches use today, sometimes exclusively, uh, as the musical element of their worship. But what I love about the wisdom literature is that, at least for me, it it, it humanizes the heroes of Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament up to that point where the wisdom literature begins is, is primarily history. In Genesis through Esther, we see the facts of the story of the people of God as they unfold through the historical narrative. So so what the wisdom literature and specifically what the Psalms offers us is this glimpse into the hearts of the people of whom we already know the history. We get insight into their thoughts, their feelings, their struggles, we see their inner conflict, their pain, their desperation and sometimes their surprising joy that we know to be common to the human experience. And I love this because without it, I don't know that I could believe that the heroes of Scripture are real men and women. Because we only get to see the highlights of their faith and their failures. But in the Psalms, we hear their hearts. We hear the rest of the story. And not only we, but the entire body of Christ. These were meant to be sung in the assembly, not to oneself, but in the public worship of God. So some context on the psalm. This is a Psalm of David, as in King David, uh, who was a man after God's own heart, the father of Solomon, and from whose line uh, God promised to bring the coming Messiah. And if you're looking in your Bible, there is a Jolly Rancher-sized paragraph in a font made for ants that says this. (laughs) For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So if you've never cracked 1st or 2nd Samuel, I'm gonna give you the highlights. Israel, which has just been rescued from slavery under the Egyptians, has been living under uh, the rule of God himself and then a series of judges. And they've now asked to have a king appointed over them uh, like the other nations, which incidentally is its own kind of unfaithfulness, but that's a story for another day. So Samuel anoints Saul king, and Saul reigns for about 42 years. But the trouble is Saul has like a, a real patience problem He keeps kind of jumping the gun on what God is planning for the nations, and so God withdraws his favor from Saul, and he has David anointed king instead. The trouble with that is that David is anointed king before Saul dies, and in fact, before Saul even knows that he has a rival for the throne. And under God's favor, David is winning all these victories, all these military victories, so much so that the people are starting to sing songs about David, and it's making Saul incredibly jealous. So at some point, Saul starts to just chase after David to kill him. He gets super paranoid. There's a scene in, in 2 Samuel 23 where, where David is actually hiding in a cave uh, from Saul, and, um, and, and, and he's terrified, but, but he's also surrounded by, by these, these mighty men, these people who are loyal to him, these, these warriors who have accepted his anointing as, as the true king, And they would would have died for him. And in fact, three of them risk their lives in this section of scripture just to get him a drink of water from his his home city of Bethlehem, because that is something that would soothe him as he's so in distress from Saul's pursuit. So fast forward a bit. Saul uh, is killed by the Philistines, and David is made king over Judah and then eventually Israel. And then one day, while the rest of the men are away at war, and we don't really know why. David isn't away at war with them, but we, we just know that he's not. So one day, the men are away at war, and David is walking on his roof, on the roof of the palace, and he sees a woman bathing, and she's beautiful. And so he sends someone to find out who she is. And the messenger comes back and says, she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sends for her, and he takes her to bed, and then he sends her home. But she becomes pregnant from this encounter. And so then David sends for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, from the wars and brings him back on the pretense that he just wants to kinda hear about what's happening in the military campaign. But he invites him to dinner, he gets him a little drunk and says, hey, you know what, go home, bathe your feet, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Does everything that he can to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah outright refuses to take comfort in his own home while the men are still at war. So at this point, David feels like he's out of options. And so he sends Uriah back to the war with a note for the general that says this, send Uriah the Hittite to the front lines and then withdraw the men from him so that he is killed. And that's what happens. So then David takes Bathsheba as his wife, she bears his child and no one is the wiser. And that's the backdrop of where our psalm begins. So about a year later, David the king is visited by Nathan the prophet and Nathan tells him this story about a rich man who, who, took the the beloved pet lamb of his poor neighbor and slaughtered it, even though he had all of his own sheep, and slaughtered it so that he could provide a meal for, for guests that he was entertaining. And David is furious, he says, such a man should not live. And Nathan says, you're the man, that's you, that's what you did. And then David is crushed under the weight of the realization that his sin has been revealed. One other note of interest. In 2 Samuel 23, after David's last words are recorded, we see a list of his mighty men, those those guys that would have died for him, some of whom did, the people who would have been loyal to him to the point of death before he was king over anything. There were 37 names in all, and the last name on the list is Uriah the Hittite. David didn't just take another man's wife. He took the wife of his friend, and then he killed him to cover up for it. I want you to keep that backdrop in mind as we read these words again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Can you you hear his anguish? Can you hear the regret of someone who has been shown a mirror and is horrified by what they see in it? Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop in the ancient Near East was used in the ceremonial cleansing of lepers. Lepers were required to to call out the words unclean, unclean, when they walked down the street so that they wouldn't contaminate other people. David here is saying, I'm not, I'm unfit to walk in the presence of other human beings. I am so poisoned, so filthy, that I shouldn't walk with my fellow man. I am unclean, there's no place for me here. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David's psalm begins with, with a confession of his sin as we see here, but the psalm goes on to describe a kind of cleansing, a rebirth. He says, create in me a pure heart, and the, and the word he uses for create is not, um, it's, it's a word that means a completely new creation, a creation as if from nothing. David isn't looking for a second chance because he knows that with the old heart still in charge, a second chance is gonna get him a stay of execution at best. Create in me a new heart, a pure heart, let me be reborn. David is describing here the regeneration that we experience first in our Christian conversion and that we declare to the world in our Christian baptism. And that regeneration required not a mended heart, but a whole new heart, a heart reborn. But in order for something to be reborn, it must first die. If you're a Christian and you were baptized, you actually died. In Romans 6, Paul writes, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Going under the water is a symbol of the death you died when you crossed the line of faith. You actually died. In the ancient Near East, the sea was the domicile of monsters. It was uncontrolled, it was unexplored. It was home to the Leviathan, the creature that Isaiah calls the the dragon that is in the sea. It was the rising seas that killed everything except Noah and his sons and the animals. It was the Red Sea that swallowed up the Egyptians as the Israelites crossed from slavery to freedom. The the use of immersion in water in baptism, which by the way, the the Greek word for baptism means to dip or submerge. The use of immersion in water isn't just a symbol of cleansing. It's not just a symbol of, of the ceremonial washing of observant Jews before they entered the temple. It is a symbol of death. When we lay our brothers and sisters down in that water, they are swallowed up by the deep. They remember their death, that supernatural death that took place inside of them, the death of the flesh, the sinful man when they believed in Jesus and then they reemerge. They are raised with Christ from the dead through the glory of of God the Father. In baptism, we reenact our death and then we celebrate our rebirth. We celebrate the new heart created in us. David isn't asking for a second chance. He knows that what he needs is not a second chance. What you and I need are not second chances because by the time we carry out our sin, we're already on our second chance. If I'm cheating on my spouse, there was a sin I committed before the infidelity. If I'm slandering my friend for my own reputation, there is a sin I committed before the betrayal, before we cheated, before we gossiped, before we stole. There was a sin that we had already committed, the sin of believing that God is holding out on us. Before the first man and woman brought hell to earth with one bite, they chose to believe that God was holding out on them. We are born into a race of people who believes that God is holding out on them, who believe that we love us more than God loves us and no amount of second chances is going to change our mind. I mean, who here hasn't tried second chances? God, if you just help me with this test, I will never procrastinate again. <laughs> God, if you if you just get me out of this with a slap on the wrist, I promise I'll never drink and drive again. God, if you just let that pregnancy test be negative, I will stop sleeping over. If you just don't let them find out, I'll stop cheating, I'll stop now, I'll stop today, I'll stop forever, and and maybe you did. But I know from my life and my experiences that any time I've made a vow like that, it didn't last. Because even if I could, could keep from succumbing to that same specific sin again, I was still stuck with my old heart. And it would eventually succumb to that sin or to another. Sometimes a worse one, and I needed another second chance, and another, and another, and another. When my daughter Ember was 18 months old, I caught her practicing crying in my bedroom mirror. <laughs> she would walk up to it, happy as a clam, take a look at herself, and then just go, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> eh, eh, eh. <laughs> just trying it on. She doesn't know a hedgehog from a turnip, but she knows how to manipulate her mother and father already. You can debate the theology of original sin all day long, there are people who do, but it makes a lot more sense when you are staring down the barrel of a toddler. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The only real evil that Ember, I think, has seen has been in episodes of Shaun the Sheep, And yet still, somehow, her itty-bitty baby heart is already full of sin. The only prescription for the sinful heart is death. We need new hearts, not second chances. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's psalm, of course, continues with rejoicing because he understands what he's gained in this transaction. He, he is celebrating in gratitude for what God has given him, this rebirth, this new heart. But then this really interesting thing happens. The rejoicing The celebration David has over God's favor has a consequence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, then then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. There is a natural consequence to our celebration of God. Because in order to praise God's grace to the world, we have to reveal to the world why we needed that grace to begin with. David is celebrating, what's he celebrating? He's celebrating that he was a sinner, that he failed miserably, and that God graciously cleansed him, gave him a new heart. He's not celebrating that he's a great king. He's not celebrating that he's a pious man. He's celebrating what God has done in the midst of his failure, and what happens then? He teaches transgressors the ways of God, and sinners turn back to him. There is an instructional aspect to our celebration of the transformation we receive through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I chose this Psalm because the point isn't just that we celebrate. The point is that we celebrate in the midst of our failures. Everyone celebrates victories, but we celebrate our own weaknesses since it is precisely our weaknesses, our failures, our shortcomings, our filth that God had to overcome in order to transform our hearts. We celebrate in the midst of our weaknesses because we want God's overcoming power to be on display. Baptism is the New Testament way of going public with our faith. And when we go public with our faith, make no mistake, we are committing to let the world see us at our worst. And it happens immediately with our wet hair and the clingy shirts and the legs that haven't seen the sun since the 80s. We are committed to letting the world see us at our worst, but in doing so, We are inviting the world to see God at his best. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, writes Paul, so that Christ's power may rest on me. David knew this. And I think this is the reason that that the scriptures call him a man after God's own heart, even though we have seen him fail so spectacularly here. Because remember, the Psalms were the public avenue of worship. They were meant to be sung. That little Jolly Rancher-sized paragraph says, for the director of music, David wrote this confession to be sung in public. He intended it to be sung in the presence of God's people, in in the presence of the people God gave him to lead. It was more important to him to display God's grace, to celebrate God's grace so that others might come to see it than it was for him to hide his own sin. Everyone singing the Psalm would have known of the all-surpassing grace of God, but to see it rightly, they must also have seen the indefensible sin of David. Without a confession of sin, a confession of faith has little value because we don't need saving. Without a confession of, of faith, a confession of sin leaves us nothing at all to celebrate. In baptism we make a confession of sin and in the same breath we make a confession of faith. If we give one without the other, there is no reason to celebrate. People are watching us and deciding something about God so it's more important for us to celebrate our transformation, our rags to riches stories, the ugliness of our sin to to our beauty in Jesus It's more important for us to celebrate this so that others might partake of it than it is for us to pretend like we didn't need that grace to begin with. This is why we celebrate. We're going down to the water this week and we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna celebrate baptism not just because our brothers and sisters are receiving their inaugural rites into the death and resurrection of Christ but because we too remember that we need the death and resurrection of Jesus every single day We need it every single day and it's available to us and that's why we're celebrating because without it, justice means death to my eternal soul. Without the resurrection, I'm just as bad as my worst moments. Without the resurrection, it's just cancer and we don't have much time. Without the resurrection, my brother's gone and why torture myself with hope of ever seeing him again? Without the resurrection, all pain is chronic and terminal and it's not so much just that we have to endure it but that we have to endure it and get up to an alarm clock and, and brush our teeth and dress ourselves and listen to tedious people and care. Without the resurrection, we, we bear the terrible burden of living without the hope of life. But with the resurrection, with the resurrection, then death is no longer the end, but the beginning. The beginning of a life that's worth living in and even physical death, that that cold, that chilling wind that comes to claim all of us in the end. Even physical death loses its, its fear because it too becomes an entryway into Eden. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We celebrate new baptisms, but also every death and resurrection that takes place in all of us when we confess our sin and in the same breath confess our faith. And in our celebration, we cannot help but reflect the grace and the joy of Jesus who still need both. Celebration in the Christian life necessitates confession. It requires that you be seen as you are so that God may be seen as He is. Do you have a place where you're doing that? Do you have a place where you're confessing? Do you have a place where you're willing to tell your story truthfully so that it can be good news to those who are far from God? We celebrate so the world can see there is joy available to them also, even and perhaps especially in the midst of pain. We celebrate because God has defeated death and we need to remind the people who are still, as Bonhoeffer writes, like an army fleeing in disorder from victory already won. There are a lot of people who are struggling to hold on to their belief in God because pain is strangling it out of them. And if it does, let it not be because they looked upon the church and could not find hope. Let it not be because none of us were brave enough to share the worst of ourselves in order to show the best of God. Let it not be because they looked at the church and saw liturgy but not life. Let it not be because they could not hear the celebrations and the victory calls of those of us who know that the worst of the fight is over. I think some of the funniest people in the whole world go to Summit Church. And if I wasn't already convinced of this, it's confirmed every time I attend a service with my friend Katie Schmidt, who if you don't know Katie, she is the laugh track on all of the sermon videos, you're welcome, multi-sites. And she has this this robust, contagious laughter that that makes you wanna laugh even if you didn't think the joke was that funny. Usually it is, Summit's funny. I also think some of the most talented musicians that I know attend Summit. And I think the smartest people I've ever met teach me about Jesus at Summit. But not a single one of them individually left the same impression on me as all of them did together the first time I sat in these seats. My first Summit service was in Theater Three where the floor was sticky and the room was narrow. But I heard the truth of God and I had to cover my mouth to not embarrass myself from laughing too loud. And I was led in worship and kind people smiled at me and shook my hand, and I left there thinking, I can't wait to come back here. And guys, I was a mess. The fact that I wanted to run toward these church people, given the mess that I was, is a feeling that I can only describe as holy. All of you together showed me something about God that I desperately wanted to see again. This is why we worship together. Praising God should not be a chore. If it is, perhaps it's because we are feigning delight in something which no longer delights us. And if it doesn't, church, let us remember our many deaths and resurrections. Let us recount to one another the places that we've come from and how far God has brought us together. Let us remember the perils God has rescued us from, and then perhaps our praise will feel a little more natural. Because it's easy to praise things that, that that we know actually delight us. And then maybe someone like me will be watching and deciding something about God. I think praising God in heaven will be more like hearing a beautiful tune, or seeing a beautiful sunset, or reading a charming story, and then remarking to your friend without effort or thought, isn't it lovely? That's not what our worship looks like yet. But in our liturgy, in our celebrations, we prepare our hearts in anticipation that God will one day allow us to hear that tune and that it will go on playing for all eternity. So I don't know what you're doing for for the rest of the day, but unless you're having surgery or uh, on a plane for a vacation that wasn't ruined by the hurricane, then come celebrate with us. Come celebrate your brothers and sisters who today will make a public declaration of their personal faith. And come celebrate the deaths and resurrections that, that, that happen in our own hearts each day. The deaths we die with Jesus and the ways that we are raised to life with him. And if you've never made a confession of sin or a confession of faith in your life, there is no better day to do that than today. Don't wait any longer. I wanna celebrate with you today. We want to celebrate with you today. Please come talk to one of us about that afterward and we would love to to, to to be that community with you, to be a place where you can begin to tell your story of rescue and rebirth and celebrate it in community with God. Let's pray. Do you want me to really, pr- okay, let's pray. Jesus, thanks for this this fun time of church with my friends and I pray that um, uh, I'm so flustered right now because I think I'm being recorded. Am I being recorded? Okay. Well, maybe we'll have the campus ministers pray. Amen. Okay. I'm sorry. I just really, I biffed that one hard. Great! Thing, like, like I'm so red. And a I'm so red. Great. Let's work let's work. do that. Give me a minute. Just give me a minute. You're to God. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> what was it? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here among my friends. Thank you that we have a community here with whom we can celebrate our many deaths and resurrections. Thank you for bringing into my life the clarity that I needed to make a confession of faith and a confession of sin. Thank you for bringing my sin before me in a way that allowed me to see it, allowed me to be saddened by it, allowed my heart to be broken by it in the same way that yours is. Lord, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that you have begun your work of transformation in my heart in this place. I pray that you would continue that in me. And I pray for all of my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. Would you continue to reveal to each of us where we need to make a confession of sin? And would you help us in the midst of that vulnerability make a confession of faith to invite the world to see us as we are? not simply to deride us for, for, for the things that we're doing wrong, but, but to invite them to see how your goodness, how your peace, how your mercy, how your grace is so good that it overcomes the worst in all of us. Lord, help us to be a community that reflects that to the outside world. Help us to, to, to be in unity with one another, to do everything within our power, to live in unity with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be a community that invites people in not simply with our words but with with the beauty of what we reflect as as a community of faith. Lord, would you help us to have the strength would you help us to have the courage to do that? Would you would you be near each and every one of us as we pursue that end? And Lord, if there is anyone here who who has never has never seen their sin so clearly that they needed to have faith in order to escape it. If there's anyone here who has has never confessed to you and to their brothers what they've done. They've never confessed that that they need a savior and not just a second chance. Lord, would you give them the courage to do that today? Would you guide them in tenderness to the conversations they need to have in order for that to take place, in order for them to, to die that death in your baptism and be raised to life with you? Lord, I pray, that you would be near to all of us um, as we celebrate our brothers and sisters in their baptism. Lord, I pray for each and every person that goes down into the water that this would mark a day that they look back on with great delight as they declare their, their public allegiance to their personal faith in you. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.